Can you believe it? It's finally here. It is the moment that I know you have been waiting for. I've been waiting for this moment. The moment when we inaugurate the sixth cycle of the Parsha podcast. It's been a tremendous run. I cannot believe how far we've gotten. We thank the Almighty for every opportunity to teach Torah, to study Torah, to spread Torah, and to do another Parsha podcast. It's Friday. It feels like Monday because we had Simchas Torah on Wednesday. So yesterday felt like Sunday, and now it's Friday, and it feels like Monday, and now is the deadline. If we want to get the sixth cycle of the Parsha podcast starting on the right foot, we have to start right now. I didn't really have enough time to prepare this Parsha podcast, but of course the Almighty helped me and he helped us as he does every single week. And even though it's Parsha's Bracious, the most difficult Parsha of the year, and it feels like Monday, even though it's already Friday, and yesterday there was no school, and we spent most of the day disassembling the sukkah, and I had a doctor appointment and a dentist appointment for my kids. There was not enough time. But we have no choice. We are in the Torch Center. We are ready to start the sixth cycle of the Parsha Podcast with the help of the Almighty. Let us begin. I'll tell you, we had a tremendous amount of divine assistance in the fifth cycle of the Parsha Podcast. We were, with the help of the Almighty, able to do a Parsha Podcast, a brand new Parsha Podcast on every single Parsha this past year. And I'm not embarrassed to tell you that I actually printed out all my notes. I use notes, of course, when I speak to y'all. I don't want to come unprepared. That is a disservice. That would be disrespectful to you, the audience. I always prepare ahead of time. I don't just shoot from the hip. I don't just speak extemporaneously. I prepare. Make sure that I know what I'm talking about. Make sure that it makes sense. Make sure that I'm going to offer you what you deserve. So I decided before Simchas Torah, before we finished the entire Torah that we read, of course, in Shul, I'm going to print out every single page of my notes from this past year's Parsha podcast. And guess what? It amounted to 509 pages. I printed them in three loose leaves. And then I said, you know what? We're finishing the Torah in Shul. Simchas Torah. And thank God we did an entire cycle of the Parsha podcast. We finished the Torah essentially together on the Parsha podcast. I'm going to dance with my notes on Zechaz Torah. And I was a little embarrassed because it's kind of weird thinking I was dancing with the Torah scrolls and I have this like loose leaf. So I flipped it backwards so no one could see what I'm dancing with. And I did a little, a little dance on Zechaz Torah to celebrate the completion of the fifth year of the Parsha podcast, the fifth cycle. But now it is time for the sixth cycle. The sixth, I could you believe it? There are going to be some innovations, some changes. I made a very tough programming decision. I decided last year we did the A&Q, and we're going to table the A&Q for this year. I came up with a new segment. I'm calling it, instead of the A&Q, answers the questions. I'm calling it the EI, the exquisite insight. I want to share, please God, every week. A short, incredible idea, maybe even a Kabbalistic idea, a nugget on the Parsha that will enhance our relationship with the Torah, enhance our relationship with the Parsha, an, an amazing insight. Let me know what you think of the change. If you are dead set on hearing the A&Q again, I'll tell you, it is not a fait accompli. I'm still somewhat persuadable if you really, 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 really wish that we continue the A&Q this year. Send me an email if there is enough of a response. I'll consider it. But right now, let us begin the new cycle with the help of the Almighty. We pray and hope that we should have as much success this year as we had last year, maybe even more. And we thank you all. I thank you for listening, for spreading the word, for your five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. And let's begin. Today, I want to share with you all Two, what I think are fascinating and interconnected ideas that will radically reshape our understanding of Torah and mitzvos and also put into perspective what's the purpose of creation? What's the purpose of Genesis? You know, the whole parsha is so bizarre. 31 verses to describe all of creation. It's obviously not comprehensive and completely inclusive. What role do we have to play in this? What should we take away from this? We're going to try to do that today. Is that 
a bit too ambitious? Of course it is. But you listen and you tell me if I'm overselling what we're trying to do today. So let's begin just to get into the whole subject. Let's begin with the verse in the beginning of the Torah, chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. These verses essentially have mountains of commentary on them. There are entire books written to just explain what these verses mean, but I think it will serve as a fitting introduction to this podcast, to the inaugural maiden episode of the sixth cycle of the Parsha podcast. And this is describing the creation of man. Vayomer Elohim and God said, Let us make man bitsalmenu kidmuseinu, in our image, in our likeness. Let's create a human. And indeed, Vayivra Elohim Adam, God created man bitsalmo, in his image. Bitsalem Elohim, in the image of God, he created man, male and female. This is, of course, a very shocking and stunning and befuddling and gobsmacking idea that man is created in the image of God in some way, shape, or form. Man is in some capacity comparable to God. Man is created in the image of God. What commonality does man have with the divine? It's not immediately obvious from the verse what exactly is being conveyed here. Another oddity that will, again, help us edge into the subject of today is that after all the creations, it says, a declaration, God saw that he made or all that he made, and behold, it was good. Vayarlikim, kitov, it was good. Yet, with the creation of man, and man, as we know, is the ultimate purpose of the entirety of Genesis, there is no declaration as there are by other things, Vayaral Kim Kitov, God saw and behold it was good. There is no such declaration. Of course, it raises some eyebrows. If man is the purpose of creation, and in every other aspect of creation, the Torah and the Almighty does declare that it was good, how come that declaration is omitted when it comes to the creation of man? So let's probe this subject a bit deeper. Are you ready? Let us begin. The Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, page 38a, this is a Talmud we mentioned in the past, still fascinating. The Talmud says, why was Adam created last? If you look at the creation, you have, of course, day one, day two, day three, four, five, and six. At the end of day six, after all the animals and all the stars and all the galaxies and the heaven, the earth, the waters, the upper waters, the lower waters, the firmament, Everything's done, the fish, the birds, the creepy crawlers, it's all done. The very last thing that the man creates in the six days is man. Asks the Talmud, why was man created last? And the Talmud gives four answers, but the first answer is really a head-stretcher. Why? Why was Adam created last? So that way the heretics should not say that God had a partner with him in creation. What an amazing idea. Had man been created on Tuesday, or Wednesday, or Monday, or Sunday, had man been created earlier, before the rest of creation, there would be a concern that the heretics would say, oh, God didn't create all those other things by himself. Man helped God. Man was God's partner. That would have been a concern. And therefore, in order to avoid that problem, God said, you know what? I'm going to make man last. And if he wasn't around by all those creations, no one could ever claim that man was the partner with God in making the birds and making the galaxies and making the fish and making the animals and making the creeper crawlers and making the the sun and the moon and the various other constellations. No one can make such a claim anymore. Now, this is obviously a head-scratcher because, wait a minute, what exactly is the concern? Man cannot be a creator. Why is there this concern? Why are we worried? Oh, if man came earlier, 
then there will be a, some legitimacy to the claim of the heretics to say that man helped God, man partnered with God. What's the concern? So from this Talmud, we find something fascinating, really two fascinating ideas. Evidently, man can be a creator. And therefore, had man, so to speak, preceded day six, someone or the heretics could have said that man partnered with God. Man has that power. This is a massive insight. Of course, it demands an explanation. But it's evident from the Talmud that had man preceded day six, there would have been some legitimacy, some grounds for the claims of the heretics that man aided God, man participated with God, man partnered with God in creation. What an astonishing idea. Man could be a creator to a certain extent. What does that mean we have to explain? That's idea number one from this Talmud, but he isn't. He came last and therefore he did not create the world or even aid God, partner with God, help God in any way. He came last. He came after everything was done. Now, here is where it gets interesting. I found three sources in the Talmud and the Midrash that say explicitly that man indeed can partner with God. So again, the Talmud says that man was created last, so no one should claim that man partnered with God in creation. Yet I found three sources, and I will give you chapter and verse so you can look it up to make sure that I'm not pulling some wool over you. I'm not cheating here. There's no chicanery here. The sixth year of the Parsha podcast is going to start with me giving you sources, chapter and verse, where to find what I'm saying, so you know it's legit. Don't trust me. Don't trust me. Don't get lulled into complacency and say, oh, Walby's been around for five years, read the Parsha podcast. He's reliable. No. Check the sources. See if I'm making this up. Again, the Talmud, Sanhedrin 38a, says that the heretics claim or would have claimed that man partnered with God. Oh, no, but that's not possible because man was created last. So we see from that that man, theoretically, could be a creator. It's just that he wasn't around and therefore he couldn't have been a creator. Yet, we found three sources that man indeed is a partner with God in creation. Source number one, the Midrash in Bereshit Rabbah 43.7. It's talking about Abraham and Abraham's kindness and benevolence and generosity and hospitality with the passerby. And it says that Abraham would be so welcoming to the passerby and he would feed them and give them to drink. And when they finished, he would say, bless. And they would say, "Uh, what do you mean bless? Who should I bless? What should I bless? How should I bless? And he says, what you should say is, Baruch Kelolam, blessed is the creator of the world, that we have eaten from his goodness, from his gifts to us. That's how the patriarch Abraham would imbue the passerby with faith. He, of course, emerges in a world where the knowledge of God is almost non-existent, and he does hospitality, and via his hospitality, he makes others proclaim God as well. Concludes the Midrash. Amr al-Kadosh Baruch the Almighty said to Abraham, Ani, me, i.e. God, lo hayesh mi my name was not known to my creations. And you made me, i.e. God, known to my creations. I am going to consider it as if you were a partner with me in the creation of the world. The exact words that the Talmud, the book of Sanhedrin, page 38a says, we're concerned. Had Adam been created before Friday, that concern, those exact words appear by Abraham. Abraham was like a shutaf, like a partner with God in creation of the world. Now, just to be completely precise, the Talmud says that the concern of the heretics, the heresy problem is where you would say that man was a partner. With Abraham, it says he was like a partner. So it's not identical, but the principle is the same. The Talmud says that man could be a partner, could be a creator. He just wasn't. And now we see what that means where man acts to a certain extent like a creator, 
partners with God. Who is the exemplar of that? Abraham, when he made the name of God known by the passerby, he was like a partner with God in creation. God was unknown in his world. And man, i.e. Abraham, he partnered with God to make God known to the world. And it's as if, says the Midrash, it's as if Abraham partnered with God in creating the world. There's a very deep insight here. God, of course, created the world, but he did not complete the creation. He left some work for us to do. And he wants us to partner with him in finishing creation. We said man is in the image of God. Just as God created the world, we too can have a share in finishing, in completing, in perfecting that creation. Abraham did it. God was unknown. The passerby didn't know that they had a creator. And that's a flaw. That's a lacking. That's a gap. There's something missing in the creation. Of course, it's a deliberate flaw. The Almighty wants us to remedy this flaw. But by doing that, by Abraham publicizing the name of God in the world, Abraham became God's partner in completing creation. That is the power of man. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. It means, just like God created, you created in the image of God, Abraham created in the image of God, partnered with God in completing this creation. Maybe we'd even say that there's like the 99% of creation and then there's the 1%. Had Adam preceded the end of the six days, someone could have said that, the heretics could have said, hey, if man can partner with God to finish the creation, well, maybe man aided God in creation itself. And that's why man had to be created last. 99% of creation was done by God alone without man even existing at that time. But that last 1%, or maybe the 0.0000001% is up to us to complete. We must complete creation. We must partner with God in finishing what he started. God wants us to be part of the 1%. That is the essence of man. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. God created a partner in creation. Now, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Well, the answer is that it's not yet determined. We get the choice. We have the free will to decide whether or not we're going to partner with God. We have the choice and we have the opportunity. But we can also, of course, neglect that awesome responsibility and that awesome opportunity. And therefore, it cannot yet be determined whether or not it's a good thing. Is humanity a good thing or not? Well, God has partners. Are those good partners or bad partners? That depends on whether we do what it is that we were created to do, namely to partner with God, to complete creation, to be a creator, to complete what God started. Our mission, perhaps we can say, is to apply the classification, and behold, it was good to apply that to ourselves. Abraham shows us how to become a partner. We have to plug in the gap that's missing. We have to publicize God in the world. We have to make his name known to all. You do that and you are God's partner. What an amazing idea. You are aiding God, so to speak, partner with God to complete what he started, to do that 1%. That's the first instance where this terminology of man being God's partner is featured. Here are the other two. In the Talmud, in the book of Shabbos, page 119b, we read the following astonishing statement. Amar Rav Amnuna, Rav Amnuna says, whoever prays on the eve of Shabbos, and they say Vayichulu, and they quote the verse in our parasha that the creation took six days, and on day seven, God ceased to create. Male all because of the scripture, considers it as if, ki'ilu, as if, he became a partner with God in creation. Again, an astonishing idea. Partnering with God in creation is over and done with. No. There is still work to be done. Abraham found a world where God was not present. 
the knowledge of God was not ubiquitously known to all. And Abraham started the process of partnering with God to finish that. And that is what Shabbos is all about. Shabbos is to make godliness known here, to proclaim godliness in this world, to make this world indistinguishable from the spiritual world, to create parity between the heavenly realm and here, to unite the two disparate worlds, to transform this world that, by default, denies God into one that exhibits, that manifests him. Shabbos is testimony that God is the creator. And by us making that declaration, we, like Abraham, of course, with the passerby, we're partnering with God. That's the second source where this terminology is featured. The third source is in, again, the book of Shabbos, the Talmud book of Shabbos, page 10a, call Dayan, every judge who judges a case brought before them completely to the truth, completely justly, completely righteously. Even if you do that only for one hour, says the Talmud, the Torah considers it as if you became a partner with God in Genesis, in creation. And it brings a source. It says over here by Moses that Moses judged the nation from morning to evening. And it says by creation, by Genesis, the God, it was morning, it was evening. Oh, we find out from that that by judging righteously, it is equivalent to a certain extent to creation. What does this mean? It's the same principle. There's a dispute. There is a court case. There is uncertainty. There is opacity. And a judge's role is to illuminate what the will of God is in this case. He is tasked with revealing what the will of the Almighty is. In effect, he is bringing God into an area where there was a dispute that was challenged principle, the will of the Almighty, was not agreed upon by all, and the judge infuses the knowledge and the recognition of the will of God into this case, and that's very similar to Shabbos, very similar to what Abraham did, you are infusing godliness into this world. And Moses, of course, did that. Moses, as, of course, the exemplar, as the paradigmatic example of a judge who was righteous, he was a partner with God. So maybe we can even say we have three levels. With respect to Shabbos, the book of Shabbos, page 119, if someone makes a declaration of Shabbos, that is personal testimony that God exists. And that makes you a partner. And then you have righteous judgment. That's when someone is enacting the will of God in this world, like Moses did, making sure that the world operates in accordance with the divine will. And that too is partnering with God. And then there's the third example, which is exemplified by Abraham publicizing the name of God in the world, making others aware of this grand principle, and that too renders a person into a partner. In all of these three instances, man is partnering with God, man is actualizing man's superpower of being created in the image of God, man is determining that it is Titov, that Behold, it is good that he was created regarding God's partners. It can be definitively said, behold, it was good. Now, there are some amazing perks of partnership. If you are God's partner, there's some amazing benefits that you get. The Talmud says in the book of Shabbos, again, page 63a, A person who does a mitzvah, again, the fulfillment of God's will, another example of partnering with God. If someone does a mitzvah as it is written, as it was instructed, says the Talmud, afilu hakarash baruchu, gozer gzeira, even if God decrees a decree, hu mevatla. That person who does a mitzvah can annul that decree. It quotes a series of verses. One verse says, and who could tell God what to do? And a subsequent verse says, Shomer mitzvah So Rashi explains what this means is, who can dictate to God and tell God what to do? Someone who is observant of the mitzvahs. What an amazing idea. God renders a decree. 
And a person who does mitzvos can annul that decree. It sounds, this sounds her- heretical, right? This sounds like crazy. But again, I'm telling you where it says. Chapter verse, the book of Talmud, Shabbos, page 63a. What this means is that you can tell God what to do, provided that you are his partner. God's partners have a say. They cannot be ignored. An amazing idea. Man can override God. God wants to make a decree. You say, no, I'm sorry. Why? Because I'm a partner. You created the world. You left me some work to do as well. And therefore, if I do that, as exemplified in this example, someone who does mitzvah as it's intended, I'm a partner with you. And a partner has a say as well. Of course, the vast majority of humanity are not partners. They're not partners with the Almighty. And therefore, they hold no sway over the divine decisions. This is the reason why, by the way, people traditionally go to the righteous for blessings. Someone's righteous. They indeed are a partner with the Almighty, and therefore they carry weight in determining what will happen to people. God made the decree, and the tzaddik, the righteous person, can annul it. Most people, the vast majority of humanity, they're not partners. We call them maybe extras. They're extras. They're bystanders of creation. Regarding them, it cannot be definitively said that their creation was good. They are not utilizing and implementing and actualizing their superpower of being created in the image of God. They have not yet actualized that, and therefore, they really carry no sway. What an amazing idea. God created the world, but left it a bit rough, a bit unpolished, a bit unfinished. The world is still not perfect because his presence is not tangible and palpable to all. We need to finish the job. We are his partners in finishing creation. Now, there's another source I want to just throw out there. The Maharal in the book called Teferi Sishol, chapter 69, he goes a bit further. He says, in every aspect of creation, man needs to complete and process and develop, so to speak, what God started what God created. Every mitzvah that we do, we're elevating and perfecting and completing an aspect of creation. And what happens when we're done? What happens when we've partnered with God to such a degree that we have completed creation? When the world is perfected, we have a name for that. The name for that, of course, is Messiah. And isn't it noteworthy that the three instances in the literature where it talks about people partnering with God, well, one example is Abraham, and the second example is Moses, and the third example is someone who keeps Shabbos. And the Talmud tells us that keeping Shabbos, that is the way to effectuate, to beget, to bring about Messiah. And we know, this is a principle we've spoken about in the past, that there are three levels of revelation. The first revelation is Abraham. He was the first one to partner with God. The next level of revelation is Torah, Sinai, is Moses. And the final level of revelation is Messiah. And that is when the world, the mission of the world has been perfected, it's been completed, and we can move on to the next epoch of history. There are three levels of revelation, which is another word for completion, for perfection, and the definition of Messiah is when the world has been completed, when we did our job, when we finished that 1%, when we actualized our superpowers of being created in God's image, when we've determined once and for all that our being created, behold, it was good, and we have this triumvirate of Abraham and Moses and Messiah, this is the triumvirate of partnership. What an empowering and a demanding idea. There is unfinished business for us to do. We must fix the world with the kingdom of God. 99% of the world has been done by God alone. In that, he had no partner. Adam was created afterwards with the responsibility, with the mission to finish the 1%. We must do that. As Jews, we are told, we are trained 
Chaviv in Yisrael, praiseworthy is Israel. We have the greatest implement, the greatest tool of creation. We have the Torah. We were given the klichem, the precious tool that the Almighty used to create the world. We have Torah. We are armed, not just with being created in the image of God as any other human, but we have the superpower. We actually have the knowledge of exactly what we need to do to complete that. That was given to us. Every mitzvah that we do forever changes the world and all the other spiritual worlds as well. We must partner with God. I want to take this a step further. After all, it's the first maiden episode of the sixth cycle of the Parsha podcast. I have to give you something really juicy and meaty. And by the way, there's even more of that yet to come in the exquisite insight segment of the podcast. And of course, I had less time to edit, less time to work on it. So I'm going to give you more than I would typically give you. Listen to this. Chapter 5, verse 1. Ze Sefer told us Adam. This is the book of the Chronicles of Adam. What this means, Rashi tells us what this means is, this is the family, the lineage, the progeny of Adam. And then Rashi adds, Umidrashi Agada. And if you want to look at the Agadic Midrash, Yesh Rabbim, there's a lot of Agadic Midrash literature on this verse. What it actually means, this is the book of the Chronicles of Adam. So if you look at the Talmud, this is featured in Sanhedrin 38b and in Avodazara 5a, we read the following astonishing, surprising, and perplexing statement. Regarding this book of chapter 5, verse 1, Ze Sefer told us all, this is the book of the Chronicles of Men. Says the Talmud, there's actually a book called the Chronicles of Men. And God showed this book to Adam. And in this book, it shows Dar, Dar, Vedarshav, generation and generation, and those who are going to elucidate the generation. And Dor Dorbachamov, every generation and its wise people, every generation and its leaders, every generation and the people who are going to make an impact in that generation. And that book that details the history and the chronicles of man was shown to Adam. It was shown to one person as well, one other person as well, to Moses. We'll get to that in a second. And Adam had no comment, essentially. And all that he saw, with the exception, says the Talmud, of when he saw the generation of Rabbi Ativa. Kevanichetiva, once he arrived at the generation of Rabbi Tiva, Samach Betoraso Vinisatsev Bimisaso. He was happy, he was gladdened in the Torah of Rabbi Ativa, but he was sad, he was depressed, he was upset, bothered by the death of Rabbi Ativa. This is an amazing insight here. There's a book called the Book of Adam, the Book of the Chronicles of Adam, and it has all the secrets of what's going to happen throughout history. Obviously, this is a great mystery. You may just wonder, of course, is there an entry for us? And what exactly does it say about us? It's very mysterious. And it raises all kinds of questions. You know, why did God show this to Adam? Why did God show it to Moses? Why are they broken up into generations? When exactly did God show this to Adam? How does this not tamper with free will? You know, this is a window into God's perspective of history. If we would see it, our free will would get corrupted. And it's interesting, only Adam and Moses are documented to have seen this book, and there's a reason why only they could see it. But there's an interesting observation I want to share with you and want to connect it to the previous idea of being God's partner. There are three people who are mentioned specifically in this book. So the Talmud says, again, the book of Senator page 38b, it says that Adam saw Rabbi Akiva and was happy with his Torah and saddened with his demise. In the Zohar, this is Bracious 55a, it says that Adam saw David... And he saw that David was going to die in childbirth. And he dedicated or conveyed 
70 years of Adam's life were apportioned to David, and that's why David lived to be 70. And Adam, who was supposed to live to a 1,000, died 70 years prior to his intended date of death at the age of 930. Of course, this is very interesting that Adam was so concerned about David. Adam was so worried about David dying in childbirth and he felt so connected to him, he was willing to apportion 70 years of his life to David. And of course, it raises other questions. You know, what's at least the mechanism of giving over years of your life to someone else? So what's the nature of conveying life years to someone else? But we have Rabbi Tiva being featured. We have David being featured. And there is a third person who is featured in this book that we know for sure. The Midrash tells us that Moshe saw the same book. And again, in this book, Dar Dar Vashoftav, every generation and its judges, every generation and its teens, every generation and its wise people, every generation and its leaders, every generation and those who teach and those who enforce and those who are the, the financial leaders of the nation. And even we're told in the Midrash, every generation and its thieves and its crooks and its wicked people, every generation and its prophets. But the Ramban tells us that when Moshe was told to go build the Mishnah, the tabernacle, God tells him, I want you to use a young boy named Bitzalel to be your lead contractor. And the verse says, See, look, visualize Bitzalel. Says the Ramban, quoting from a Midrash, God showed Moshe the book of Adam. And in the book of Adam, it says there's going to be a generation in which the mission is built, and it's going to be built by Betzalel, Ben Uri, Ben Hur from the tribe of Judah. So we have three people who are mentioned specifically in this book King David, Betzalel, and Rabbi Akiva. And I want to speculate with y'all on this maiden episode of the sixth cycle of the Parsha podcast. I want to speculate with y'all that these three people really represent the idea of partnering with God in this world. Think about it. David, of course, is the monarchy, but is the Messiah. Messiah, we said, is completing the mission of partnering with God. Bringing God into this world is culminated when that is done. That's the revelation of Messiah. But Salel, he built the Mishnah, the temple, the tabernacle. That is a earthly, a terra firma representation of God. It's a domicile for God here. It's actually fixing, remedying the same problem that Abraham was working on. People don't know about God. That is actualized in the Mishnah, the tabernacle. And Rabbi Kiva, he is the father of the oral Torah. Talmud says that all of oral Torah that we have came to us via Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is to oral Torah what Moshe is to written Torah. And oral Torah, of course, that is the human contribution. That's us partnering with the divine. The written Torah, it's completely the work of God. It's part of that 99%. The 1%, that's the oral Torah. And who contributed to the codification, formalization, perpetuation of the oral Torah? Number one on that list is Rabbi Tiva. So these three people represent more than anyone else the greatest examples of realities in this world of exhibiting God, of making this world a domicile for God, of bringing God and Torah and God's presence in this world. That is the book of Adam. That's the story and the destiny of Adam. Adam was created and it wasn't determined that it was good. Why? because we don't know if it will be good. The book of Adam, that is the story, that is the mission, that is the mandate, that is the destiny of Adam to complete the world, to partner with God and complete what he started. And Adam is really worried about this. He's really worried about David. What's going to be if David is born, dies right away? Well, then there's going to be a flaw that's going to be unremediable because Messiah won't exist, because the Davidic line won't exist. He's saying, I'm willing to give up anything in order to be determined about us, about humanity, that behold, it is good. 
that we're living up to the mission that we have, that we are indeed utilizing the superpower of being created in the image of God. What an amazing idea. What a way to start the Parsha podcast, five, seven, eight, two. What a way to start the Sitch cycle. What a way to start the Torah. We were created with powers unrivaled by even the angels. We're created in the image of God. The Almighty expects of us to complete what he started. He did almost everything, but there is a little bit of polish for us to do. He wants us to bring his name in the world, to perfect the world, to fix the world. That is our mission. And by doing that, it can be said upon us that God saw us and behold, it was good. Let us be partners and not extras. Now, before we get to the new segment of exquisite insights, I want to just answer the question of the last A&Q of last year. We asked the question, why when the Torah is eulogizing motion and delineating all those great qualities and all those great attributes and all the amazing things that he did for the Jewish people and for the world, why does it throw in this barb that uh, when they mourned him, it wasn't quite like the mourning given to Aaron. It seems inappropriate to have a little bit of criticism, even though it's, of course, you know, we take it, of course. We take only being mourned by the males of Israel, not the females. We take it. But still, it seems inappropriate when the Torah is praising Moshe to have a little bit of critique, or at least to say he's not as great or wasn't as beloved as Aaron. So the Maril Diskin, who was the chief rabbi of the town of Brist and eventually Jerusalem, he said an amazing idea, a very famous idea that he said about this question. He says, actually, the Torah is praising Moshe. The Torah is praising Moshe by saying that he was a complete leader. And even though some of his decisions were unpopular, he did them nonetheless. The fact that not everyone wanted to mourn Moshe, that is indeed one of Moshe's accolades. That's one of his great qualities because a leader has to sometimes make tough decisions because that's what's appropriate. And you know what? If they're not popular, it doesn't matter. I have to do what's right. If I'm a true leader, like Moshe was, you have to do things that are unpopular. And the fact that he was, to a certain degree, at least relative to Aaron, unpopular, that indeed is a feather in his cap. A rabbi who no one wants to fire, is probably not making enough of those tough decisions, those unpopular decisions that are the rabbi's mandate. To be a leader means to take a stand and to do things that may be unpopular, at least to some of the people, but they are correct. And thus, it is praise for Moshe. It shows that Moshe has a backbone. He was willing to do unpopular things. Okay, let's get to this week's exquisite insight. This is uh, something we're going to start off. We'll hopefully we'll be able to do it the whole year. Find an idea that's just a mind-blowing idea. Hopefully it'll be short, not something too long. The one I have for this week is a little bit longer than what I envision this segment being. But you let me know if you like it. If you really, really insist on continuing with A&Q, convince me, persuade me. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Okay, so in our Parsha, we have, of course, the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. And then we have the dispensing of punishment of consequences as a result to the snake, to Adam, and to Eve. In chapter 3, verse 18, we read, There will be thorns, there will be thistles that will spread out. You'll have to weed the fields. You're trying to plant, you, you know, you want wheat, you want barley, and you get all kinds of other things that are not edible. You got to pluck them all out. It's going to be very difficult for you to make a living. It's going to be very difficult for you to bring out produce and grain because you're going to have the coats and the dar-dar. Now, the B'nai Yisachar, one of the great classic Hasidic works, he has an amazing piece on this verse. The coats and the thorn, the dar-dar and, and weeds will sprout out. So a little bit of background. So, of course, there's the principle of gematria. I've talked about, many, about that many times. It's very helpful to know how the gematria system works. But the word coats, which means a thorn, is a gematria 196. And the word dar-dar, which is really dar twice, each dar, dar is, dalit is four, and resh is 200, so it's four and 200, 204. 
Now, the word coats, which means a thorn, just it's very helpful to know, to understand this, this idea. Coats also means like a serif. So you have a serif, which is like a little dash, a little dot at the end of a letter, like a kutso shal yud. The, the little bit, the little jot that comes out of the yud is called the kutso shal yud, the, the coat, so to speak, the thorn of the yud, which is the little serif that comes out of the top of the yud. So here's the idea that the Bnei Saskar says, an amazing idea. Originally, man was someone who did good naturally. All evil was disdainful in the eyes of man. And then man eats from the tree of knowledge, good and bad. And now there is a mix-up. There is good and bad operating within him, and it's almost indiscriminate, and you don't really know what's good, what's bad, what should I embrace, what should I avoid. Of course, the objective of Torah, Torah is to illuminate before us, to, to guide us, to instruct us what's good that we should embrace, we should adopt, we should adhere to, and what's bad, that's dangerous, that's fire, that's poison, that'll kill us, and we should, of course, avoid. And that's the objective of Torah, and that's why it says in the path of Torah, behold, I have placed before you life and good and bad and death, embrace life, choose life, and avoid death, avoid bad. And with every decision that we make, we are either embracing good and veering towards God, or we are embracing bad and veering away from God and veering to idolatry. And then he says something very fascinating. There's two verses in the Torah that are descriptions of the opposite choices that we can make. One of them is the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elkeno, Hashem Echad, God is one. And that, of course, is when we choose good, we're embracing God as our master. Hashem Echad, God is one. And that is, of course, the good choice to make. Now, if you look in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, where it says that verse, the Dalit is enlarged. It's like almost like when you make for a child, you make big letters. You have 11 letters in the Torah that are enlarged. One of the enlarged letters is the Dalit of the word Echad, Echad 1. There is another verse that says, Lo yihyeh becha el zar. You should not have within you a foreign god. Velo sishtachaveh le'el acher. You should not bow down to a different god. The word acher means different. And also in that verse, the resh, the, the, the race, which is the last letter of the word acher, another god, different god, a foreign god, that race is also enlarged. And he says something fascinating. The difference between the word echad, one, i.e. god, and the word acher, other, foreign god, the complete opposite of that, one of them, they both start with the same first two letters, aleph, ches, echad, acher. The difference is the dalid versus the resh. With the word echad, god is one, it's a Dalit. And with the word Acher, a different one, it's a Reish. Now, if you know what a Dalit looks like and a Reish looks like, they are almost identical. If you look at them, you know, like an old printing of a book where the printing wasn't quite as crisp. Sometimes a Dalit looks like a Reish, a Reish looks like a Dalit. The only difference between the two is that, you know, the, the, both of them have a vertical line. And then at the, uh, at, at the top of the vertical line, you have a line going to the left. The difference is that a Dalit also has a little bit, a little serif going to the right as well, whereas the Reish does not have that. They're almost identical in how they look. So here's the idea. The difference between Echad and Acher, for us, now post the sin of Adam, it's so hard for us to tell the difference. It's so hard. They look so similar. The difference, says the Bnei Shasar, is the coats. The coats, which means, again, the thorn in our verse. But coats also means a seraph. The difference between the two is a seraph. That's it. Just the seraph on the top right, so to speak, of the letter. The Dalit has it. And the Reish does not have it. And here's another amazing thing. What is the difference in Gematria between the Dalit and the Reish? Dalit is four. Reish is 200. The difference between the two is 196, i.e. coats, which is, again, exactly 196. So coats is the difference 
between the dollar and the Reish, between the Echad and the Acher, between the, the big dollar and the big Reish, where the Torah is telling you, don't confuse these two. Look, I'm making them bigger for you. Don't confuse the two. Do Hashem Echad and don't do El Acher. Don't do a different God. That's the difference. And there are difference in how they look. One has the codes and one doesn't. And they're also different, and they're also different from each other. The Dal and the Reish, they're different in the Gematria. One has a codes and one does not have a codes. And the Torah is telling us, now, the, the consequences of Adam's sin is that there is kotz vidar dar. Dar dal means dalad resh, dalad resh. We are going to confuse the dalad with the resh and the resh with the dalad. And that's, that's the result. That's the consequence of his behavior. Kotz vidar dar. That's the problem. Now there's the kotz. There's this little tiny thing, this small seraph separating the dalad and the resh. And now they're all conflated, mishmashed together. And now the dar dar. We have this, this dar dar, which is again, it literally means the weeds. But the dollar of the race are now helplessly entangled. It's a bit problem. We don't know. Are we doing Hashem Echad? Are we following the will of God? Are we doing just good? Or are we maybe, God forbid, now veering off the path and we're following El Acher, a different God? We are doing idolatry. What an amazing little piece. Now we connected, of course, the golden calf. Lech raid with the sin of the golden calf. God tells Moshe, go descend. The word raid is a ration and a dal, the same two letters of dar, dar. And he connects the two. Of course, in the past, we've spoken about how the sin of the golden calf is emblematic of the sin of Adam. It's the conflation of the rash and the dal. The Torah is telling us, hey, hey, I'm taking these letters. I'm making them really big. Don't get them confused. Make sure you, so to speak, undo the dar, dar, the coats and the dar, dar of Adam. No, you should embrace Hashem Echad and you should avoid, you should eschew El Acher, a different God. What are your thoughts? Do you like this new format? Send me an email regardless. My email address is rabbiwalbejima.com. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your incredible support throughout the years and for being with me, persevering for the first episode of the Sitch Cycle of the Parsha podcast. Have an amazing rest of your day. And a fabulous Shabbos, and may this be a year of tremendous blessing to all of us in the Parsha Podcast family.